Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Why are UFOs so interested in human military activity? Have they actually taken away pilots and military personnel? Are they planning an invasion, a rescue, or neither? Hello there, and welcome to the 347th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those far-ranging questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So tonight we have two very special guests in studio with us this evening. But before we introduce them, it's time once again for our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, what is the newest major airport in the world to be considered haunted? Well, Kelly Halstead from Windsor, Ontario, was the first to get the correct answer. Denver International Airport, where a number of odd multiversal happenings seem to have occurred. The usual reason given is because the airport, which opened in 1995 and whose total facilities occupy some 53 square miles, is built on ground sacred to the native tribes. Who knows? Make your own decision. Kelly listens to us on the great WOMC in Detroit. All right, so maybe this week uh, we'll... We'll check out something new. So this week's question is, where would you find the lake monster known as Hamlet? And no, it is not the River Avon in England. So be the first to get that answer right and win a copy of UFOs in Wartime by tonight's primary guest. We do welcome callers this evening, of course. I often forget to give the numbers, but here they are. Locally or from Canada, 401-766-1240. Or from anywhere in the USA, 800-449-1240. Mac Maloney has been writing military adventure and science fiction books for, ne- for nearly 20 years and is the author of some 30 tomes. It makes me sick. I've only written seven. These include the popular Wingman and Starhawk series, the Chopper or Ops series, and the fan favorite War Heaven. He grew up in, Dor- in the Dorchester section of Boston and was taught to read and write by the nuns at St. Anne's School. His father was a veteran of World War II. And he used to read military books all the time. As a kid, Mac himself started reading them, uh, along with a lot of science fiction. After his words, wasting four years at high school, unquote, he somehow wound up in college and eventually received a B.S. in journalism. After that, it was on to grad school for a degree in filmmaking from Emerson College. He was a sports writer, a reporter, I should say, for two years after college before joining corporate America as a publicist for the General Electric Company. And we understand that there is a movie or two in the offing. Well, that's news to me. But okay, well, maybe we'll give you the good news. Okay, yeah. this, we know a lot of producers. This evening, we'll concentrate on Mac's new book, UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. Mac's website, macmaloney.com, strangely enough. All right, also we have, uh, oh, we have with us graduate student filmmaker William Beretta, or finally known as BJ, who came to us all the way from Florida. Apparently I'm some, wrong about that. It's from Washington. Washington, D.C., yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> let's just say Florida makes it sound more epic. Oh, <laughs> nicer weather. Somewhere than, in the Maldives. Yeah, up here in New England. From Florida, yeah. All right, so in, he was doing some filming with us today. So, BJ, can you uh, briefly tell us what you're working on? Well, I'm doing a documentary, and the working title is called um, "What Is the Paranormal." But as I as I'm going through this journey as a filmmaker, um, as I delve into what the paranormal is, um, I think there's some deeper questions. And I spoke to you and your father today, and really more enlightening uh, points of view. And just basically looking at the paranormal from from the various points of view, from a theological point of view, parapsychological point of view, psychic. Um, uh, skeptic, um, even got a quantum physicist now, trying to understand, you know, what is this? What's uh, what's going on? What's happening? And it's not going to demonize or evangelize uh, one point of view over the other. It's just going to ask some, some some sincere questions from some of the top experts in their fields uh, regarding the paranormal. And if you don't mind, just, you can get more information on my website, www.bjberetta.com. That's B-A-R-R-E-T-T-A dot com. BJBreda.com. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, well, and uh, I wanted to tell you, uh, j- just join in on the discussion tonight while we're talking with Mac, because uh, uh, UFOs are an important part of the paranormal, too. I didn't quite, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, even just talking to you today, it was really kind of uh, enlightening, opened my eyes when I think yeah. of paranormal, they, to kind of go beyond that. That's excellent. Because we, uh, you know, people say, well, you have a lot of paranormal shows. Well, it's, it's entirely relevant, because we start ghost cases, and we end up with UFOs and greys mm-hmm. very often, you know, because we spend years on cases, and maybe that's... The more you look for, the more you're going to see. But you know, that's it. So, in any case, um, I was 
what Ben usually says, uh, Mac and BJ, welcome to the show, to Behind the Thank panel. you. Glad to be here. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Mac, UFOs really do weave in and out of military history. Uh, did you pick up material for this book while doing research for military books that didn't involve UFOs? Well, uh, not exactly. I was having lunch with my editor about three years ago when we were just kind of spitballing ideas, as they say, and um, I had mentioned to him that I had read a lot of military history when I was a kid just because my father had it around the house, and I was also always interested in UFOs. And at some point, those two interests just merged, came together. And I mentioned to the editor, I said, you know, it just seems to me that UFOs show up more in wartime or when we're getting ready to go to war, and we actually talked a little bit about why that would be. Is it because, you know, people are in airplanes, you know, certainly in modern war, and they, you know, are more likely to see something flying around up there with them, more, more people on the ground looking up because of airplanes flying. And uh, so he said, you know, this might not be a bad idea for a, a book, but it would have to be a nonfiction book. And um, the rest of my books have been novels. So he said if you wanted to try a nonfiction book, why not? And um, so we did, and that was about three years ago, and um, here we are. Okay, very good. I'm going to interrupt the conversation here because do we have a winner? We yeah? do. Okay, very good. Uh, Scott Guigan. Uh, Go- Gogan. Gogan. Sorry about that. From Uxbridge, Massachusetts. And what was his answer? Oh, uh, it was um, Lake El- Elsinore. Lake Elsinore in Southern California, the home of Hamlet, a rather refined and distinguished lake monster, obviously. Very good. Yeah, it goes around shouting pros at people. And well, congratulations, <laughs> Scott. Maybe we can... Um, Get uh, Mac to sign the book here since he's with us in the studio. Rare treat for us before we sign. So what well, takes care of that? All right. So please continue, Mac. You were talking about uh, so um, the we origins. decided we were going to do this nonfiction book, and um, it it actually took longer than I thought it was going to take. A novel usually takes anywhere from you know seven to eight months, let's say, and for the most part, you do some research, but you're making it up. Uh, for the most part, and but with this, I suddenly found myself surrounded with books and lots of you know internet stuff and calling people. And yeah, about halfway through, I thought to myself, "What what have I got myself into here?" But um, it was fun too. I met a lot of interesting people, learned a lot of things that I I didn't think I was going to learn. And people seemed to like the book, so all in all, it seems to have been a successful venture. One of the stories you mention in the book uh, is, is a story we I think we have done more service to this case than any other TV or radio show in the in the world, and that is the Rendlesham Forest UFO case in England of 1984. Actually, Ben and I will be speaking there ourselves in September, and we have um, done this case in and out, upside down, with Bill Burns, the Nick Pope, Linda Moulton Howe, all the greats, Stan Friedman and all the major witnesses, including Lieutenant Colonel Halt and all the people who were there at these two NATO bases in England where UFOs apparently landed and in, perhaps interacted and did all this stuff. That is mentioned in your book, of course. What is, and oh, I guess, well, Ben had a question here too, but before we get to that, what is the interest on, who, uh, on the part of whoever or whatever this phenomenon is in our military activity? Well... It just seems like, you know, in my mind, UFOs and the military, are, they're, they're almost tied together in a way, you know, because I, I, I can't answer the question. I wish I had an answer mm. to the question. You know, it, it just seems to me that they're, they've been tied up together ever since, well, since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, like I say, I don't know the answer to that question. I know the, the uh, Bentwaters case is how I uh, you know, started researching it. It's an unbelievable case. It, it, what I like the most about it is that uh, Major Hall, he was a major, right? At the time, yeah. Right. I think right. he was a lieutenant colonel. Oh, okay. He, yeah, he, he goes into the woods. Full bird, he retired as a full bird. He went into the woods with a tape recorder being, I think his quote was, I was, I was the type of person who his job was to throw cold water on these things. And then... He becomes a convert instantly when he sees the thing in the woods, and, and you can mm-hmm. hear him speaking into the tape recorder, and he's converted right before your eyes. Well, the, the other guy you can hear on the tape was one of our guests last night, mm-hmm. um, Monroe Nevels, and okay. uh, he seemed to have uh, differing opinions on this, and Ben asked some good questions, but I don't want to get bogged down in that. Ben, uh, go ahead. Uh, we'll continue with our discussion here. That uh, Okay, so who or what do you feel is behind these UFOs? Well, you know, if we knew the answer to that, 
uh, we'd be just really, a, you know. We and, probably wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> There'd be more interference than there is in the broadcast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's such a hard question. It's such just a massive puzzle. I mean, I look at it as like a huge jigsaw puzzle that sometimes you get a piece and it fits here and you get another piece doesn't fit here, but it'll fit down there. There's so many aspects to it. I have to say that that when I started, I guess you could say that I was one of the little green men from Mars proponents, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but the more I worked on it, and the more I saw how UFOs acted during wartime, because war is also is historical. I'm really coming around to the idea, and I'm not the first one to come up with this. That they might be ta- time travelers. They might be time travelers from our own future coming back to look at history being made. Um, there's a lot of kind of evidence, evidence in quotes, uh, for something like that, especially in wartime. And the example I always give is that, uh, you know, we had situations with the Foo Fighters where British bombers are over some German city and they're bombing it and, and it's just an unbelievable, it's a battle in the sky. They're dropping bombs and there's night fighters shooting at them and there's anti Yeah, during fire World War II, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and suddenly there'll be a foo fighter 100 feet off the wing of this bomber flying along parallel with it. And all I can think of is like, why would they do that? If they had such technology, they could certainly watch these things from afar if they wanted mm-hmm. to. Why would you get so up close and personal unless you just want to be there while it's happening? Um, if and we, these were essentially lights, these so-called Foo Fighters, as they were dubbed by bomber crews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was actually about, we, we came up with seven different um, uh, examples of Foo Fighters. A lot of them were lights, but others were, you know, your typical cigar-shaped objects, saucer-shaped objects, things that the British called unguided rockets, which were actually very, very much guided, and um, large glowing orbs. And then strings of light. So, mm-hmm. um, Foo Fighters was really kind of like a catch-all term. Yeah. Um, so, and and a lot of people thought that they were um, German secret weapons. The British uh, military certainly thought that. The United States was of the mind that we don't have the time or the people or the wherewithal to try to find out what these things are. Let's let's get the war over with and you know see what happens. Of course, what happens is when the war is over, they all go away. Mm-hmm. What they were, you know, we don't know. But oh, did they go away? Well, the war kind of went away. Yeah, you know? yeah. The there wasn't was, as yeah. many people up there flying around. There wasn't as in, intense action. Um, of course, in 1946, just you know, one year later, they had the ghost rockets of Sweden. So mm-hmm. you had a, a kind of a different um, uh, UFO flap then. But so many people saw these things, and uh, they also figured that only about 10 percent of them were reported because they actually. Uh, discouraged pilots, especially the British, but also the United States pilots, American pilots, from reporting them. And um, Keith Chester, who wrote a book called Strange Company, which is like the Bible on Foo Fighters, he and I became friends while I was researching the book, and he figures about only 10% were ever reported, and that was just to the Army Air Force, which is now the Air Force. None of the Navy sightings uh, were ever really officially reported, and there were hundreds of them in the Pacific. People seem to want to um, think about Foo Fighters just strictly over Europe and Nazi super weapons, but there was there was a lot of them in the Pacific theater as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have any questions at this point, BJ? Is a uh, oh no, this this is interesting. Make an observation. Um, yeah. What do you think of this, Mac? Stan Friedman, Stanton Friedman, the nuclear physicist, well-known grandfather of the UFO studies, been on the show many times, very good friend of ours, has suggested that the reason for their interest being the UFOs, whoever or whatever is piloting them or whatever they are, is because we are, in his words, about to become the Genghis Khans of the neighborhood. We have the technology to go out into space and bring with us our terrible weapons that we've used on each other. And he says what the UFOs are doing is monitoring us, checking us out, and maybe in some ways keeping us at home. Do you think there's any merit to that argument? Well, there's there's a lot of evidence that UFOs are very interested in uh, nuclear weapons. There's a major section in the book about the UFO incursions over our ICBM bases in the 60s and the 70s. Of course, Robert Hastings wrote the Bible mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, uh, we've had him on too. Yeah. And, and nukes. And yep. um, we really dipped into his writing a lot to uh, get the research for this book. There's definitely something out there that 
as I say, pays attention to our nuclear weaponry, and on many occasions, and, th- and this is, you know, hasn't been publicized anywhere near uh, to the extent that it should, uh, on many occasions have sh- have shut down uh, ICBM so, uh, silos, have shut down entire bases of ICBM launch sites, up to 150 at a time. Uh, there's been actual instances where people have seen them land right next to the silo, possibly gone in the silo. There's been instances where they've shut off all the power, where they've retargeted ICBMs. That's where that scares the daylights out of me. Retargeted to where? I've asked high-ranking officers, never gotten an answer. Right, right. I, mean, there were no, I, I think you will never get the answer. This supposedly that. happened at Randlesham. Uh, right. Although Hall couldn't admit it because mm-hmm. by treaty there weren't supposed to be any nukes at that base, but mm-hmm. everybody knew there were, I guess. Uh, there definitely were um, instances, a lot of instances, where they would go into the uh, missile silo after the UFO had come and gone, and they would find that the uh, the targeting systems had been had been tampered with. I've heard on several occasions that the, that weapons were actually warheads were actually missing and were never found. That's a scary part. Um, that's scary to think about. Yeah. Um, there's, then there's a case, and it's not just us. There's a case in the Ukraine where in 1986 a UFO appeared over what was then a Soviet uh, ICBM base. Started the launch sequence, uh, and and it just it was ticking down, and they're trying to call Moscow. Moscow, you know, doesn't know what's going on, and it, and it got to twenty, twenty, and then it <laughs> twenty stopped. seconds, twenty seconds, oh and then Lord. it stopped and, and reverted back. So we were twenty seconds away from a launch caused by a UFO. But that's a new one on me. Uh, that was uh, Peter Jennings was someone who was very interested interested in UFOs. I've heard that. Yeah. And he did a, a, a three hour special on TV shortly before he died, or a few years before he died. And uh, that that case is uh, one of the major points that he hits. He was someone who, uh, you know, uh, th- one of the problems is that a lot of the mainstream media don't want to touch this. But he was someone who was pretty high up there in the um, food chain of uh, mainstream media who paid mm. attention to this. Yeah. I bet I don't want to monopolize the questions here, or PJ. Well, no, uh, we, we've been talking a lot about the Rundersum case. I think we're all kind of uh, kind of sick of it at this point. No, yeah, no, no sick I, of I wouldn't it. say I wouldn't some say of the sick of it. Yeah, well, it, there, there's definitely some other interesting stories out there that you have in your book. Do you want to cite some of your favorite ones? Well, I mentioned before the Ghost Rockets of 1946 is you know just a, a total mystery. And real quick, I'll try to explain it. In uh, 1946, in February and March. Uh, over Stockholm, Sweden, people started seeing these rockets, and there were hundreds of them. Uh, Sometimes they would fly alone. Sometimes they were flying in twos and threes, maneuvering, taking U-turns, and so on. Uh, People would see them land in lakes. Uh, The Swedish military would go into the lake, and nothing was there. It got to the point where the Swedish, you know, are neutral by their, that's just how their politics go, but they secretly asked Great Britain to send them some air defense radar, which they did, and they started picking these things up on radar, and and that's a big step. You know, people may see things in the sky that can be explained by, you know, uh, optical illusions or whatever, but when you start picking up UFOs on radar, then you know they're there. So now they have situations where they're picking these things up on radar and, and they're literally being seen by by thousands of people. The Swedish government went to the U.S. and asked for their help, and they sent over Jimmy Doolittle, the uh, hero of the 30 Seconds Over Tokyo raid and, and a war hero of World War II. He was briefed. He was there because he was working for Shell Oil at the time, but that was his cover story. He actually got briefed by the Swedish Defense uh, Council, and they laid it out for him, and they said, our conclusion is that these are not of this earth. They tried to say that they were actually from Pinamunde, which was where the Nazis built their V-1 and V-2 rockets, but that was bombed out of existence, and they thought the Russians might be launching them from there, but uh, th- there was nothing left there. They could not come up with any kind of an explanation what these things were. And then in the summer of 1946, a Swedish Air Force pilot actually got to ride alongside one of these things and got a close-up view of it. And when you see his description of it, it's the exact description of a modern-day Tomahawk cruise missile to, the, to a T. And later on uh, in 1986, one of the people on the uh, uh, Swedish Defense Council, as they called it, was interviewed by two UFO researchers. And, and what he said was, the only thing I can tell you is that what, we, what people were seeing back then were cruise missiles. But 
No one had the technology for cruise missiles back then. <clears throat> well, this gets into the issue of, uh, that's coming up frequently in a lot of the interpretations now that are coming out, and even to get not to mention Rendlesham again, but it, time travel and time slips, uh, things we run into all the time in our paranormal work, uh, little, little disjointed moments of time and space. Uh, did any of this, those things explode, or did they all land in lakes? They they either just you know disappeared from sight, or there was a number of them that yeah. would land in lakes for some reason. And, and, yeah. and there was one lake where um, they had a lot of witnesses to see one of them go in, and the Swedish military got there in a you know, short amount of time, cordoned off the place, and sent divers down there, and they never found anything. Well, of course, the Germans essentially invent, during World War II invented the, the cruise missile, if you were, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. the, the the V the V one V one buzz bomb. Right. Buzz bomb uh, looked just like a modern cruise missile, essentially, but it was noisy, mm-hmm. and it sure the heck exploded. It exploded, uh, and and it, it it was shot, and it was just shot. It, it would go on one single trajectory, yeah. trajectory. Let's say these things, the ghost rockets were seen maneuvering. They were seen flying in formation. Um, taking you know right, uh, ninety degree turns and so on, as if something intelligent was uh, controlling them. And then uh, once again, then they went away. They just suddenly mm-hmm. went away. Okay, let me ask you a question, BJ. Yeah. In the course of your work for your film, mm-hmm. has anybody uh, besides us ever mentioned UFOs? Well, I got to be honest with you. I was up until today when I, when I spoke with you. When I thought of UFO, I thought of just kind of the, I guess, the traditional kind of layman's kind of thought that, you know, extraterrestrial, you know, of this world, or not of this world, but of this existence or universe, you know, alien visitors coming to visit us. And I was, I was thinking more of, you know, consciousness. You know, when I think of the paranormal, I think, are you talking about your consciousness or spirit? And if that exists after you die, kind of like deeper meaning, you know, does life have meaning, you know, meaning after, you know, meaning of life, life after death? But in talking to you and just kind of my, my research, you know, I come to realize, you know, paranormal and consciousness and what we observe and what we perceive beyond our five senses, uh, you know, perhaps, um, you know, b- because we're so limited by our five senses. So some of the things that you were mentioned before, and I think you mentioned in my interview, uh, that perhaps, you know, maybe it's not an extraterrestrial per se, but, you know, a time shift or, or something that had happened or something that will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I guess the one thing that I've kind of learned in this documentary is that you know you can you can question everything, but it's it's hard to you know you talk to magic. Nobody knows what the answers are. I mean, if thousands of people are witnessing this, and 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 they're you know if you ask anybody, you know they've had a paranormal experience, or they saw something, they felt something. It seems to be pretty universal. What is that? Um, I don't know if we can prove it. But I think there's, you know, lots of great, you know, avenues to consider. Mm, That's true. Well, Mac, it's always interesting to see how UFOs seem to imitate or at least be seen in the context of the time. The the so-called scare ships of the 1890s, which interestingly enough, here I go again, happened around the Rendlesham area, (laughs) all right, uh, eastern England, east Anglia. And uh, onward, it's Zeppelin-like aircraft, or blimps, as you might say today, uh, or the sightings in northern Scandinavia in the 1930s being seen as airplanes. W- what do you think could be the implications of this? Two people just interpreting them as, as uh, things of, from their own time, or what? You know, I don't know. It's, it's as you were saying before, these, you know, time slips is something that, you know, we could never understand, I don't think, or, or but they seem to happen. Um, the scare ships of over East Anglia in, 19, in 1909, people saw what they believed were zeppelins. The only problem was was that the Germans did have a zeppelin, but it, it did not have the range to make it from Germany to England and back. Everyone knew that Germany and England were going to go to war eventually, but this was five years before the war started. And plus, these scare ships were seen going, um, they were clocked, going 250 miles an hour. <laughs> and even these days... Uh, you know, even our modern blimps can only go for about you know, go about fifty knots, let's say. So people seem to to have been seeing something that was out of time, just a little bit out of time. And in the Ghost Fly of, of 1933, once again, they're seeing these very odd airplanes flying over this very desolate part of Sweden. No airplanes have ever been seen or existed before or since. And then we have these ghost rockets of that appear to be Tomahawk cruise missiles. 40, 50 years before their time. It's almost like something is just a little bit off. Mm. 
and once again, you know, it's maybe a lot off. A lot off. We, yeah. we just can't figure out what it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to take our commercial break, and you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben. You know, on WOON twelve. I always want to say CBS. Yeah. WOON twelve forty AM and ONWorldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Stay with us. Hi, everybody. This is the Moose Man. Join me for a two-hour Groove Line the Summer Special live Saturday afternoon, June 2nd from 1 to 3. We'll have studio guests, trivia, and prizes as we feature the hits from the summers of the 60s. Don't miss it. Yeah. Owen Radio. And I wanted to remind you about our marvelous sponsor here, Amazon Kindle Fire, $199, and you get over 20 million movies, TV shows, songs, magazines, and books, thousands of popular apps and games, including Netflix, Hulu Plus, Pandora, and more. And with the new Amazon Silk Ultrafast web browsing uh, app, you now have its built-in with Wi-Fi and the whole business in your Kindle Fire device. And certainly, you can also get, on top of all those wonderful things, four of my books. Uh, certainly, you get Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, and My History of Rhode Island, written with Glenn Laxon, formerly of Channel 12, uh, excellent reporter and historian, now used in several school districts in Rhode Island. So you can get all that and much more on Amazon Kindle. You can get the Kindle itself for as low as $79. Check it out at Staples or online at Amazon or Amazon.com or Amazon Kindle's own website. And we always drag the poor guests into this. Now, Mac, uh, is, is your book available on Kindle? Yes. There you go. They're this wonderful book, Amazon's in Wartime. UFOs in Wartime, Why Didn't They Want You to Know? By Mac Maloney, our, one of our guests tonight. And uh, forgive me, it's been a long day. Anyway. And my mom's book it just came out, The Book of Transformation, uh, Lisa Beretta. Lisa Beretta. Uh, Lisa Beretta, Book of Transformation. So if you are a fan of Behind the Paranormal, which I'm sure you are if you're listening, that's going to be, uh, I think it might be a book you might enjoy as well. Excellent. We, hey, we hit the jackpot tonight. Mm-hmm. Check it out, folks. Now, right back to our guests, and we're talking with Mac Maloney, author of the book we just mentioned, and B.J. Beretta, a filmmaker, who uh, we've had the pleasure of uh, spending some time with us today and interviewing us for his, uh, his film. And uh, Ben, take it away. You know what's what's always really fun to bring up is always the infamous Project Paperclip, where right after World War II, the Soviets and the Americans sort of divvied up the Nazi scientists and all the crazy things that came out of it, like Werner von Braun going to NASA. But there was also the little-known Nazi scientists that came out of it. Like oh, I forgot his name. Can, can't remember his name for the life of me, but he supposedly created an anti-gravity machine. Was well, that SS colonel? No, 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 different guy. No, not the guy who created the Deglaka, a different thing. Oh. But he, in an interview, someone was like, oh, how'd you come up with this? He was like, oh, aliens told me how to do it. And everyone was like, oh, little green men. But then there's also the infamous Thuler cult that dealt with all the, had all these psychics and all this stuff. And it was really, really weird. So the Nazis were into some really weird stuff. And right after World War II, we had all this crazy stuff happen in the United States. So, Mac, do you attribute anything from that to the UFO explosion, you could say, after World War II in the United States? Uh, no. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, the Americans and the British at one time, I, I mentioned before, thought that what people were seeing over Germany, uh, the Foo Fighters, uh, were German secret weapons. And there's a lot of people who still kind of continue in that vein. But here's why it it wasn't. First of all, in 1943, uh, when the war was just about half over, the Germans introduced their first jet fighter. It was the first jet fighter ever to enter combat, the ME-262. And it was an advance, there's no doubt about it. But Germany was so poor of resources, or so resource poor, that the cockpits of those jets were made out of plywood. They didn't have the steel and the metal and, and the rubber and the plastic to actually make the cockpits out of what they should have been made out of. That's just an example of how Germany was losing all of its resources by this time. Uh, oil, ball bearings, gasoline, rubber, things like that were all in very short supply for them. Um, so where would they have got the resources to build these things that people think were these great uh, secret weapons? Uh, number two, there's no, there's not one instance during World War II of a Foo Fighter firing on any of our airplanes, uh, British or, or American. 
Uh, number three, the Germans saw Foo Fighters too, and at the end, and so did the Japanese. And at the end of the war, there were uh, intelligence briefings between the former enemies, and basically, what happened at the end of those briefings or during those briefings was, the Americans were, would say to the Germans. We thought they were your secret weapons. The Germans said to us, we thought they were your secret weapons. <laughs> Same thing happened mm-hmm. with the Japanese. And, and, and the number one, the major point of why Foo Fighters were not uh, German su- uh, secret weapons, um, other than the fact that there was never any uh, instances of them firing at our planes, is if they had this technology uh, to, uh, that was displayed in what Foo Fighters could do, why did they lose the war? If these were their weapons... There's no way they would have lost. So this whole idea that you know these are somehow Nazi su- secret weapons, I think it's I think it's bad in a way um, because it it continues kind of the Nazi way of thinking into a modern day, and I don't think that's you know a good idea for anyone to be spending time on. I know there are some UFO writers who uh, kind of write about that a lot, but I think they should be spending their time on other things and. Um, I just and, and of course you're right. Warner and Braun and a lot of German scientists came to the United States, and they're basically the reason we went to the moon. I mean, German Nazi scientists put us on the moon, and the other half went to uh, Russia, and they almost put them on the moon. They certainly got the first satellite up there at Sputnik. A lot of space, um, the space race was run by Germans on either side, but there's um, there's nothing to this idea that they had anti gravity gravity machines or anything like that because look what happened look at the outcome of world war ii mm. that's true it's just fun to bring up because it's always fun to talk about conspiracy theories and stuff on the air i mean just look at george nuri <laughs> uh, <laughs> always has his conspiracy theory hour yeah uh well all right back i was gonna ask you let's move up to 19 the early 1950s 1952 was sort of the year of the ufo at least as we look back on it and there seem to have been dogfights almost between UFOs and uh, at least U.S. Air Force personnel, Canadian Air Force uh, aircraft. And w- what what was going on in 1952 that was so so big? The UFOs over Washington and all this. Go ahead and tell us about that. You know, I don't know. Once again, it's one of these things that it's it's another piece of the puzzle that no one can figure out. Um, but the, the the main thing that happened in 1952 was on two successive. Weekends in July of 1952, on Saturday nights, just hordes of UFOs showed up over Washington, D.C. They buzzed the White House. They buzzed the Capitol building, the Pentagon. They buzzed two airports there. They were seen by airline pilots. They were seen by airliners full of passengers. Uh, Jets were scrambled. Uh, At one point, a jet fighter was actually surrounded by UFOs. They were picked up on radar at two different uh, air bases down there. And lots of people on the ground saw them. And the first time it happened, the Air Force tried its best to cover it up, as usual. And it, it actually turned out that uh, a gentleman named John Rupert, who was the head of Project Blue Book, was in Washington just coincidentally uh, that weekend. No one contacted him. He found out about the UFOs over Washington, D.C. in the newspaper. And he called the Pentagon and said... I'm here. This is a great coincidence. I'm here. I can stop my investigation. And they stopped him in his tracks. In fact, they said to him, you can do anything you want, but we're not giving you any transportation. If you want to go over to Andrews Air Force Base to look at what happened, because that's where they were first spotted on radar, you're going to have to take the bus. I'll pay for your own taxi. And and he just got furious and left and, and flew back to his headquarters in Dayton. The point is, is that the I don't think the Air Force knew what was going on, and they didn't even want their own lead investigator looking into it because if he came out and said, I don't know what's happening, well, then they're in this position where they're supposed to be protecting us. If they don't know what these things are, they're not protecting us very well. You just hit on the next question. Yeah, that actually leads right into our next question. It's a perfect segue. So why are UFO encounters hushed up, and who are they hushed up by? Well, they're definitely hushed up by the Air Force. They're definitely hushed up by the U.S. military. Not sure about that, but go ahead. And, and it's it's a question I'm asked all the time. And and is it? And it's really kind of fifty-fifty. Is it that the U.S. military knows UFOs exist? They certainly know they exist. Everyone knows they exist. We just don't know what they are yet. But do they know they exist? And they know what they are, or do they know? They exist, and they don't know what they are. It seems like they know they exist, and they have a lot more evidence that they do exist 
but they don't know what they are because then what you're covering up is what I just uh, spoke to earlier, is that they're supposed to protect this. They spend a half a trillion dollars a year on a defense budget to supposedly protect us. Well, they can't come out and say, we don't know what these things are, therefore we can't protect you from them. I think that's why they're covering them up. I know that there's lots of theories out there that even that you know the, the military is working with aliens in a mountain in New Mexico and all this stuff. You know, I don't believe any of that. I get a feeling that they know, they have more evidence of UFOs, but I don't think they know what they are any more than we do. I think that that's a very plausible approach. So, Just whatever it's worth, speaking from my own military experience and from our own research over the years, I wonder if it really is the government, beyond what you say, if it really is the government covering it up and not some other organization. Maybe the government is as much of a victim as we are, and the cover-up from their part could be because they don't know either, and they don't want us to know they don't know. But I wonder if there's not more to it than that. You, um, you, you yourself, while we were off the air, you mentioned that we, uh, what, what we've noticed, that strange things start to happen when you get into this field. Uh, especially in broadcasting, we've had weird ultra weird experiences uh, on our CBS edition you know, as I said brand new studio brand new equipment CBS is supposed to know what they're doing to this day they can't figure out the weird voices that were coming in why people were being cut off on, on the discussional panel we had that night etc cetera, etc cetera. so it is I suppose a really huge uh, mystery uh, in your well, let me give our phone numbers again. We, you know, we get yakking and I forget to do that. Uh, you are listening again, WOON 1240 AM, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and our phone numbers this evening, locally 401-766-1240 in a listening area or in Canada, and certainly from uh, anywhere in the USA, 800-449-1240. Talking to Mac Maloney and, and uh, BJ uh, uh, Beretta as well, who is uh, a filmmaker who is with us today. So... Ben, did you want to take this next one here? Or? Oh, uh, sure. All right. All right, so in your military travels and contacts, you have seen evidence of a clear relationship between the us and them sort of thing, between our government and the UFOs and their, or their occupants. Are, are, they, are they hostile, friendly, or cooperative? You kind of started to answer that, but right. uh, what kind of relationship is this? Well, it, it, they have not been openly hostile so far. We have, uh, the book has 70 episodes of UFO military encounters starting in 1909 and up to the end of the first Gulf War. And there's only, I think, three in which there's some kind of exchange of fire between uh, one of our aircraft and a UFO. So for the most part, they they seem to be non-hostile. What I think they're doing is, and it, I've just come to this because, you know, reading all these UFO books and researching for this one, is that they're observing us. I think that's the safest answer. They're observing us very closely, especially when we're at war. They seem to be very interested in when we're killing each other. And maybe this fascinates them. Once again, maybe it's, uh, you know, time travel is coming back to seeing history as it's being made. It might be something just as simple as tourists coming mm. back from a, from a, a future time to see as I say, history being made. I mean, if we had the capability now to do it, who wouldn't go back to see how the Civil War was fought or the Battle of Troy or something like that? Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because that has come up on the show recently, the whole idea of time travel. Oh, even before that, when we were talking about Mothman that one time, when they uh, had that UFO flap going on in uh, Point Pleasant, and there were people who would like, or, or I can't remember if it was there or somewhere else. Yes. Where there were people in jumpsuits who would go to people's houses and then take magazines. Yeah, sort of the man in black kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, John Keel's descriptions of these people coming to people's houses and asking, and, and some of them were in Air Force uniforms, but their insignia were in the wrong places, like they didn't know how to wear the uniforms, right. didn't know how to shake hands. And would pick up things like an ashtray and 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 uh, ask if they could keep it <laughs> or a, or a pen and walk as, as if they'd encountered you know some great antique deal at Sotheby's or something mm-hmm. and uh, only to disappear in some black car. I mean, I mean, the time travel thing does seem to be coming up a lot. I spoke with a policeman in England who had witnessed one of these landings or, or near landings, and he and his partner described. I talked to both of them. It's 20 years ago, but the thing hovering over the road with windows and people looking out at them from the windows. I mean, is that 
tourism? I can't think of any better explanation. The magic school bus. It might the be as simple as that in some of these cases. On the other hand, especially with our multiverse approach, we seem to encounter all sorts of different critters out there who have not, seemingly nothing to do with each other, with different agendas, doing different things in different ways, in different craft, different races, uh, all coming in from parallel worlds, if that's how you interpret it. Um, so you may have time tourists, you may have hostiles, you may have friendlies, you may have neutrals, and you it probably do. Mm. So uh, I can see why anybody in the Air Force would scratch their heads. What do we do about okay. this? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, a simple way in to get the military to kind of own up to this, and I just started talking about this a few months ago, and then a, a few other people have caught on to it. Is a lot of times people will come up to UFO researchers after they've given a speech or whatever, and 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 they'll be veterans, and they'll say, "If only I could tell you what I saw." Yeah. But I've been told not to tell you. Yeah, some people call this show say that. Mm. So Radar the thing operation. to do is how about this? How about petitioning the Pentagon to give blanket amnesty to anyone who's been told not to talk about a UFO sighting they saw during their time in service? There will be no one, there's no ramifications. You're not going to lose your pension. You're not going to be uh, embarrassed. You're not going to be ridiculed. Let these people come forward with a clear conscience. Let them report what they've seen. I can tell you, at the very least, we'll have an avalanche of new sightings to study, and that will get us that much closer to figuring out what the UFO puzzle is. And if the, the Pentagon doesn't go along with something like this, and there's a precedent for it, then we know they're hiding something. So it's a win-win. And the precedent is is the people who were able to overturn um, don't ask, don't tell. You know, that was the policy of the Pentagon for a long time, and, and the people whose, whose agenda was to get rid of that just embarrassed the military on a daily basis for about eight years until the military finally said, okay, forget it, we're gonna, we're gonna do away with that policy. They embarrassed the people, they embarrassed them in the media, that's how you do it. I don't think a petition will work, but they embarrassed them in the media on a constant basis, and they finally did away with it. I think the same thing could be done with this UFO amnesty plan. Well, you know, you're familiar with Steve Bassett and his his efforts to uh, use the White House site website, which has a, a, a process for petitions, and uh, he got 20 times more signatures than they needed, and they just blew him off. Right. Uh, that might be one approach to this. On the other hand, th- there does seem to, at least to me, there seems to be a genuine terror on the part of anybody who knows anything about this. And I wonder, and I've, Steve doesn't care whether he, you know, whether this is true or not, he wants to know, if the truth might be so terrifying and beyond our understanding that that might be what the thing is. Anyway, we have a caller. And hello, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hello? Okay, did we, go, did we lose the caller? No, it should be on. Okay. Uh, hi. Uh, Are you ready? Whoa. Uh, okay, well, whoever was it, please call back. We'll, we'll try, try not to lose you next time. 766-1240. Give us a call. Anyway, or 449-1240-800. All right. So, anyways, we we're saying um, I want to, we'll talk about that with Steve Bassett, but uh, there, there is the possibility that, um, and this gets into some of the things that we get into in some of the other shows. Is it possible that the human race was, for lack of a better term, created, manipulated to serve another race? If you look at the ancient documents that I've looked at uh, in the original languages, the Book of Genesis the Atrahasis of the Akkadians or the Karsag epics of the Sumerians, there is a consistent story of someone coming in from somewhere or maybe somewhere, starting an agricultural colony and messing with the natives, us, by using saliva and blood as DNA sources and coming up with... And what we run into day in and day out in cases that we deal with we call parasites who sometimes turn into greys this is why we think the ghost thing and the UFO thing seems to be related. And they seem to feed upon us, farm certain families and certain communities. Is it possible that all this is about us being cattle for somebody else? Well, when are they going to come and take delivery? That's the 
Well, they, they, they take it every day. Oh, Some okay. of the stuff we work with. Right. And you think that if the government knows about this or whoever knows about it, they're going to they're come blurting it out that, hey, you know, give up your career. It's not worth it. Well, you know, that would be, um, <clears throat> I think anything is possible. I mean, that's one thing I can say is, mm. you know, since doing this book and doing the research and, and talking to so many people as I have, anything is possible. There's, there's, we cannot explain uh we can't explain UFOs, but we also can't explain things that you were talking about earlier, paranormal stuff and, and, and time slips and things like that. I think it's interesting that, that it might be all part of the same thing. You know, uh, Einstein died trying to figure out the unified field theory, I think he called it. He wanted to get the fourth. Well, they were started on it, yeah, yeah. and they still haven't got it. And, and he wanted, as he put it, he wanted one, one set of rules for the, for the four different games. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be interesting if UFOs and ghosts and other things that we talk about were all part of the same thing? You we know? think it is. That's what we see. Yeah. Um, Maybe I, we're I, wrong. I, I never thought of that until, um, you know, started doing this book and, and doing interviews like this. You know, are we cattle for another civilization or, or something like that? Boy, I don't know. That would be, that would be just so unbelievably startling that, um, people would hush it up. Well, that's true. People <laughs> would hush it up. Yeah, that's true. If, especially if you have nothing to, if there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, that's for sure. But uh, when you say, um, who who would be the people? If I could ask you a question, who would be the who are the cattle and who are the families that that they're preying on now? That we would. Well, we're, we're talking about cases that that, that in uh, traditionally would be referred to in folklore as as demonic, mm-hmm. poltergeists. Uh, even possession cases, things of this kind, and we just see the parallels. I'll give you an example. Ben and I were in uh, in West Virginia in 03, uh, and I was speaking at the Paranormal Conference down there. Bud Hopkins was there. Bud Hopkins uh, passed away recently, a marvelous fellow, great artist, and also probably the world's greatest expert on alien abduction experiences. He sat down uh, with me, and he showed me his photo album of injuries that had been done to people supposedly during abductions. I said, Bud, you're not going to believe this, but this is exactly what we see in poltergeist cases. Hmm. The same kinds of, of injuries, bruises, scoops even. And uh, are, are we really, depending on the context of these things, for how we label them, maybe they're, they're two sides of the same coin, maybe the same side of the same coin. I don't know. So as you say, I think it's the first day of school with this stuff. And uh, But the question is, what is our place in it? Right. So... Uh, well, yeah, kind of DJ, same, please. Yeah, it's kind of the same way when I started out, you know, my documentary in the sense that you you, ha- you have your own kind of defined, finite views mm-hmm. of what you think you're going to find, and I think that's how we all kind of are. But the mm-hmm. thing is you start interviewing different people and, and hearing their different experiences, you it kind of informs your own view, and it kind of, you know, you're kind of more open. You, you, things can't be explained, but you understand there's a lot more questions. And like you said, it's the first day of school, and you can't even begin to comprehend. And it is amazing how similar when somebody says they have a UFO experience or an experience with a ghost or a demon, how, how, how there are similarities. So it's just maybe something we can't contextualize, maybe something that you know we can't be able to comprehend mm. based beyond our five physical senses. We have a, a picture we show when we, we lecture. It's generally it's, it's just a piece of ice on the sidewalk taken here in town. And uh, if you look at it, it was around Christmas time, and you can see the big belly and the bag of toys and uh, the waving Santa Claus, right? Because our minds will take things and assemble them into something we can understand, whether you know through our auditory senses or, or visual. And uh, there we there we sort of have it. Okay. And I, I think of one kind of last question here uh, on the issue of hostility here, uh, Mac. I was a kid in Connecticut, Connecticut Valley. East Hartford, right next to Glastonbury in the, the early 50s, and I heard stories of a crash of a National Guard plane that had been up chasing, the kids said they were chasing a UFO in 1952, the year before I was born, and it crashed in Glastonbury, Connecticut, uh, as one of a number of examples, and was it shot down? Uh, there was, it supposedly ran out of fuel and crashed, but there was a fire, which indicates either the thing was armed or was full of fuel. Uh, the pilot was killed. They, uh, there are stories I thought I read in your book, uh, too, that there was a, one pilot was missing after the plane was taken. Um, can you really say that there was no hostile action here or that, or that nobody has been lost on our side, so to speak? Well, there's definitely been pilots lost. Um, that episode that you referred to happened over the Great Lakes in, in the 50s where mm-hmm. a, a jet fighter was sent to intercept a UFO and 
they were watching this uh, them merge on radar, and when the two blips merged, only um, they just turned into one big blip, and no one ever saw the airplane again. Yeah, right. There's an incident uh, that we take up in the book um, in the beginning or uh, the end of the first Gulf War, where an F-16 shoots at a uh, UFO and possibly shot it down. But there's just so many UFO sightings, whether by civilians or military. But let's take the military for in, for instance, where planes chase UFOs and so on. And in the number of instances where there's any kind of hostile action, let's say firing weapons back and forth, uh, are really, really low. So I think it really goes more to the thing where they're observing us. They want to keep their eye on us. They definitely want to keep their eye on our military and what our military is up to. But... Um, I just don't think that they've showed that much hostile intent up to this point. Okay. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to thank our, our marvelous guest, Mac Maloney, author of this terrific book, UFOs in Wartime, and our good friend, B.J. Uh, Beretta from Washington, D.C. We'll get that straight yes. for one, who's been up uh, filming with us today. So uh, I want to just tell us uh, – oh, we – we did that. Okay, already. we have Scott. Okay, thank you, Ben. I, I should now, uh, not, not to doubt your abilities. Uh, you always do a fine job as producer here. I try. We got our winner's uh, uh, address. Anyway, uh, just to suggest you contact us through uh, our website, behindtheparanormal.com. You can certainly find all about our guests, past, present, and future on that. You can also uh, find a link to our main site, newenglandghosts.com, which has a lot of articles about what we talk about on the show. You can also buy my books, as well as our guests, uh, Certainly, and uh, subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out once a month. And you can also apply to be a show reporter. Uh, we have reporters pretty much all over the world now who let us know what's going on in their areas from the paranormal standpoint. So, so wait, we don't have any other announcements? Yeah. Well, you, well just saying, okay, well, we have nearly 400 po- free podcasts on our show. Then they are available at www.behindtheparanormal.com. Well, we should say that we will be in Torrington, Connecticut on July 19th to speak there, and also uh, Suffolk, England. Uh, that's as that exact time hasn't totally firmed up yet, but we should be in the village of Woodbridge uh, on September 22nd. It's a Saturday. So and just watch out for more information on that. Watch more information on that. We have a lot of listeners there. Uh, they, lo- they, they love you, Ben. They love you in East Anglia. I know. Uh, now just right. continue but, with the closing, okay. please. Okay. All right. <laughs> of course. So many thanks to our producer, uh, the great Ben himself. And we won't see you live next Monday, May 28th. It is um, uh, on, here on ONWorldwide.com or WON1240 AM. It's Memorial Day here in the United States, and we'll be taking the day off. Uh, the show will be a rebroadcast, but we will be back live with you on June 4th. And that's the day we're going to have Mark Phillips, who is the executive producer of My Ghost Story. Uh, that'll be a fun discussion, I can assure you. All right. So on our regular CBS edition of Behind the Paranormal on Monday, on uh, Sunday, May 27th in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, we'll host a show that many of you have been looking forward to: the Great 2012 Debate between authors Dierlon, a believer in the implications of the Mayan calendar, and Dr. Chris Keating, who claims that nothing weird is going to happen at all. So don't miss it. We leave you this evening with a quote from our dear friend Albert Einstein: "Quote: The world is a dangerous place to live." Not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it, unquote. So thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.